This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipsker from Chabad of Hyde Park. And a wonderful Erev Shabbos to all of you, and what a great Shabbos this is going to be. It's a Shabbos that, of course, we have two parshiot. We have two major portions of the Book of Bamidbar. Not only that, but it brings us to the close, to the end of the Book of Bamidbar. It's also Shabbos Mavarchim when we're going to bless the month of Menachem Av. And while, of course, the month of Menachem Av is not the happiest month of the Jewish calendar, but nonetheless, it's a month that is filled with tremendous opportunity and great spiritual energy. Yes, we reflect upon the destruction of the temple. We think about all the terrible things that we've gone through, the various exiles that we were forced into. And, well, the destruction of not one but both temples. And this, of course, is a cause for a certain amount of sadness. But as mentioned at the same time, it's a month that our sages tell us has the opportunity of freedom and liberation. It's a month that is destined for great things. It's a month that, in fact, we are told that the ultimate Redeemer will be born during this month. And it is a time that we have to hope and pray for those things to happen. And that's why it's called Menachem Av. It's called not only the month of Av, but Menachem means consolation. It's a month that on the one hand we are consoled, but the only true consolation, of course, is a complete removal of anything that's negative, destruction, exile, suffering, pain, anything that has to do with negativity in life. The true consolation, of course, is when we come to that point that we can say truly it's gone, it's been transformed, it's been elevated. And this is why the Shabbos is a special Shabbos, because we bless that month, and therefore we have to look for inspiration within this Parsha. We have to look for inspiration within these two Parshas to try and understand, first of all, the Parshas themselves, and second of all, how it relates to the month of of being part of the three weeks and introducing the intense period of suffering during uh, sadness during the nine days of of the first nine days of of it's also the parshias that bring us to the end of the book of Bamidbar. it's shabbos chazak of strength it's a shabbos that we strengthen ourselves we strengthen each other it's a Shabbos that we have to think about moving forward, not only moving forward, but moving forward in a way that enables us to leap, so to speak, to jump from one book to the next, from the book of Bamidbar to the book of Devarim, from the book of Numbers to the book of Deuteronomy. And every single change in a Parsha, in a book, brings about a tremendous opportunity as well. And this is why we say chazak, chazak. We should strengthen ourselves. We have to be strong because in order to take, well, to take advantage of opportunities, there has to be a certain amount, well, of awareness, but at the same time also a huge amount of courage and strength as well. And this is why we have to strengthen ourselves because more than often we are quite content to be where we are. We're quite happy to be where we are. It's familiar, it's comfortable, we're used to it, and it's something that we know. And for us to leave and to move on to something altogether different, even if it's greater, takes a tremendous degree of courage. And this is why the strength is needed. And this is the Parsha, this is the Shabbos, that we think about the double Parsha of Matas Amase. We think about the fact that it's Shabbos Mevorchem Menachem Av, the Shabbos that we are going to bless the new month of Av and all that that entails. And of course, Shabbos Chazak. We come to the end of the Book of Numbers, Bamidbor, and we're ready to move on to other things as well.
Matas and Masai often come together, and while, of course, both of them have much in common, they both speak about coming to the land, the vision of the land, the opportunities of entering the land, how to enter the land, how, in fact, the whole relationship of the Jew and his land should, in fact, take place. There are certain significant differences between the two parishes as well. First one, of course, is Matos. Matos speaks about how it opens up is with the laws concerning, well, oaths and promises a person undertakes to do certain things, which we'll talk about soon. And then it goes on to speak about a great battle that had to take place prior to the Jewish people coming into the promised land. And in fact, this was the last direct instruction commandment that God gave Moshe. He said to Moshe that after this commandment, he will be gathered onto his people. Moshe is reaching the end of his life. And his final great mission is to prepare the Jewish people to go into battle against the Midianites. And it wasn't something that was easy. It's something that came with great complication. And we have to understand why, in fact, it took Moshe. Why was it necessary for Moshe to do that? And in actual fact, this was his last clear instruction from God before the Jewish people come into the land. Obviously, there's something exceptionally powerful and difficult about this battle, and therefore it takes the presence and personality and leadership of Moshe to enable us to be victorious in this great struggle. And not only that, but we have to understand why it was necessary to, in fact, go into battle. Why was it just well, ignore them. Why do you have to go into battle with the Midianites? After all, they are, well, they weren't the best of nations, of course, and they did terrible things to the Jewish people and tried on more than one occasion to hurt them and hurt them badly. But uh, we're on the way to the promised land. Why stop and, and, and deal with that battle? It's not as if we're going to annex their land. Their land was not ours. And it was not annexed to... Um, to Israel, to the promised land. Why is it necessary to go into battle? Why was this what appears to be almost as a diversion of moving laterally to the side prior to coming into the land? Why is that so important? And then we come into the Parsha of Masai, which deals with journeys. And journeys, of course, well, that's what life is all about. Life is not a journey. Life is a series of journeys. And a journey takes us from place to place. A journey takes us from one situation to another situation. And things change. Every place has its own rhythm. Every place has its own structure. Every place has its own time and space reality. Every place, every space has its own unique personality. And of course, the individual who's able to recognize the particular, well, personality structure of any given place, that individual is able to use the experience of having come to that place in the best possible way. And we'll talk about the idea of the journeys, the 42 journeys that the Jewish people had to take and how this reflects in our own lives as well. But let's get back to Masai, to Matos. Let's get back to the first partial. Let's get back to the idea of vows and promises. And the vows and promises, Nidarim, is that a person restricts himself by saying that even something which is permissible, I am going to, well, distance myself from it. I'm going to swear off eating this or drinking that or sleeping here or sleeping there. I will do certain things and I will restrict myself from doing other permissible things. And our sages seem to say 
that they weren't very happy with this concept. It says there is enough that God told you to do. Why do you have to burden yourself more by introducing these vows, these promises, these oaths? After all, why couldn't you simply fulfill that what you have to do? Why burden yourself with more restriction? And while, of course, one can understand that nonetheless, this happens to have a very primary place. In fact, we have to listen carefully to what's taking place. So we're coming to the closing part of Torah. Yes, from the book of Deuteronomy, where Moshe repeats the entire Torah, but in terms of the journeys, in terms of the travels, in terms of the Jewish people having been liberated from Mitzrayim, the great exodus, received the Torah, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they've come to the end, they're about to come into the promised land. Why talk about oaths now? Why? Yes, of course we understand that sometimes a person must restrict himself, etc., etc., but what is this all about, and why does this take such primary position? And we have to understand how that leads into the idea of the battle with the Midianites, how that leads into the idea of taking possession of the land. After all, the Torah tells us precisely what the borders of Israel are and how all this comes together, how all this comes together as part of the preparation, the immediate preparation prior to the Jewish people going into the promised land. How does all this take place and how, in fact, it plays itself out? And it's this Shabbos which is so important. It's precisely the Shabbos that, on the one hand, we have to think about the month of Av and the negative dimensions of the month of Av, destruction and exile, etc., etc. It's precisely at this particular time that we talk about doing battle against the enemy, being victorious spiritually and materially in every sense of the word, marching into the land with a tremendous sense of pride and greatness. How does all that come together? And more of that soon. This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipsker from Chabad of Hyde Park. We're talking about Matos and Masay, how they come together, what they teach us, how in fact it opens up with the laws pertaining to promises, to vows, to oaths that we have to make from time to time, and how all that plays itself out just prior to the people coming into the promised land. We're talking about the idea of vows and promises just prior <coughs> to the Jewish people coming into the promised land. And we've spoken about this idea a number of times, the fact that the Jewish people had to make a transition from the life they led in the wilderness to the one that they're going to lead in the promised land. In the wilderness, it was an isolated, protected life, a very spiritual life. Food came from heaven, the manna fell daily, except, of course, on Shabbos. All their needs were taken care of. Water was provided by the miraculous well of Miriam. The clouds of glory protected them from the heat of the sun, from the cold of the night, from enemies. The Jewish people lived in an exceptionally tranquil, peaceful environment, materially and spiritually, with no need to function in the world as we understand it. And yet... They are about to enter into a whole different reality. They're about to enter into the land, excuse me. They're about to enter into the land and to, well, change their lives. <coughs> Manna will no longer fall from heaven. The clouds of glory won't be there. The Jewish people will have to work the land and work the physical world in order to live, in order to survive. 
and in order to grow as a nation. And this was a tremendous shift, a shift in attitude, a shift in behavior, well, a shift in entire life. Living for so many years in a protected environment, in a beautiful environment, they are about to come in into a semi-hostile environment because living in the physical world does have its challenges. The physical world is a world that, well, it's a world that's made up of all sorts of positive and negative things. And yes, we are told in the Torah, these are things you can do. These are things you should not do. We have all sorts of pathways and walkways through life in order to understand how we should behave given certain circumstances of life. There are certain things that enhance the quality of man. There's a certain things that bring us to a higher level. There are certain things that we do that refine our character, elevate our minds and hearts. And unfortunately, there are certain things that we do that bring us down, that destroy that particular, well, godly image in which we were created. We are people who are, well, reflecting the image of God. We are here to bring the message of God. We are here to perfect the world, to finish the creation of God. And in order to do so, we have to have very clear and strict instructions how to go about things. When you take a look at Jewish life, it's very, very interesting. Everything that we do, almost everything that we do, well, is preceded by a blessing. We eat something. We make a blessing before. We make a blessing afterwards. We hopefully think about using the energy of the food that we eat for a positive purpose. And so it is almost with every physical dimension of life. We pause for a moment. We stop for a moment. We consider what are we about to do. We are going to enjoy the pleasure of God's wonderful creation. But in order for us to understand that it's not merely the physical pleasure that we're getting involved in, but we are there to serve a higher purpose. We are there to use the world to transform the physical and material things that we use and to elevate ourselves in the process. Now, this is a tremendous challenge, a tremendous challenge where a person looks at everything that he does. A person looks at every, well, every single detail of life and stops for a moment to reflect upon why am I doing this and what am I going to do as a result of the fact that I've done X, Y, and Z. And yes, these are the choices that we are faced with, well, on a daily basis. Tragedy is we don't think about it often enough. The tragedy is that we don't take it as seriously as we should. But every single situation, every single moment of life, every single action of life has to be considered and understood and, in fact, evaluated in terms of is it good, is it positive, is it negative, is it destructive. But we don't live in a perfect world. And we know ourselves, and we know ourselves to be imperfect human beings. And because we are imperfect human beings, well, we have strengths. We have many strengths, but we also have weaknesses. And sometimes those weaknesses, unfortunately, take control of our consciousness, of our behavior, what we do and how we do it. And therefore, sometimes when we allow those weaknesses to become uppermost in our actions, Unfortunately, the way that we encounter and interact with the things that we do in the world is often as a result of how our weaknesses prefer it to be rather than how our strengths prefer it to be.
Our strengths are our mind, our heart, intellect, emotion, our soul, spirit. When those things are dominant, when those things are in control, everything that we do has purpose. Everything that we do has a place. But when we behave in a way where our weaknesses take control of our personalities, of our beings, then we no longer judge correctly. We no longer behave correctly. We no longer do the right thing. We do it simply to satisfy the needs of our weaknesses. And the weakness can be all sorts of weaknesses. There can be intellectual weaknesses. There can be emotional weaknesses. There can be physical weaknesses. There can be sense weaknesses. The weaknesses manifest in every single area of life. But the point is we have to be absolutely sure and honest when we look at ourselves what in fact is driving us to do X, Y, and Z. Is it the strength? Is it constructive? Is it the good? Or God forbid is it negative and therefore will be destructive? And very often a person looks at themselves and says, no, I have this weakness, and this weakness is too powerful for me to handle right now. And therefore, a person makes a vow, he makes a nadir, that I will not indulge in this particular type of activity because, unfortunately, my weakness overwhelms me, my weakness takes control of me, my weakness will not allow me to do what I have to do in a positive way. I would rather not do it. For instance, a person who has a desire to eat a particular food and overindulges, and somehow he thinks to himself he can't control himself. Well, he says, I will make a vow that for 30 days or for however long he does it, I will not partake of that food. Is it right? It is wrong? As I said before, our sages are out, out in terms of discussing, is it right or is it wrong? Hopefully, we would all have the strength to do the right thing at all times, but we don't. And this is why a person makes these vows, because he knows himself, he knows himself to unfortunately be weak, and therefore, his weaknesses rather than his strengths have to be controlled, and he makes the vow because we don't live in a perfect world, and we aren't perfect creatures. But sometimes a person has to say to himself, am I doing the right thing by making a vow? By simply distancing myself from encounter, it's only a temporary measure, because the moment my, well, vow comes to an end, I will once again have to encounter that situation. And therefore, some of the sages tell us it's best not to make the vow, or even if you have, simply, well, go and nullify it. There's a whole process and procedure how to nullify it so that you can have the opportunity of interacting with that situation and trying to elevate it to a higher level. But both of these things are true. A person from time to time should make vows, but at the same time must realize at all times that it's not a permanent solution to any type of problem in this regard, it is something that has to be done on a temporary basis, but then you have to encounter that situation, that challenge, that weakness head on. And this is something the Jewish people had to think carefully about before they came into the promised land. The promised land, as mentioned before, was going to be a place and time where the world would be altogether different. 
They would have to work the land. They would have to be involved in the physical dimensions of life. And it's precisely within the physical dimensions of life and the material dimensions of life that the weaknesses come to fore more than often. It's precisely when we are involved in the physical activity of life that our weaknesses seek to take control of ourselves. You know, living in the desert, there was no, well, the manna fell from heaven. A person didn't buy or sell food, and therefore all sorts of concepts of honesty and dishonesty weren't there. Nobody bought or sold food. Food was there from heaven. It was a gift. But coming into the land... People are going to work the land. They're going to sell their produce. How will they sell it? Will they sell it with honesty? Will they sell it with ethics and morality? How will they interact with each other? Will the relationship with each other be one based upon a moral code as defined in Torah? And therefore, getting involved in the physical world, very often the person says to himself, I don't have the strength to do X, Y, and Z. If I live a monastic life, if I live away, if I live in a perfect, isolated situation, I can survive. But living in the physical world, there is simply too much temptation. There is simply too much out there that is trying to take hold of me, that is trying to seduce me, that is trying to take me to places where I shouldn't go. And even though some of those activities, if not most of those activities, are perfectly permissible according to Torah law, nonetheless, there is a concern that a person might cross the line and enter into areas that he shouldn't, and therefore he makes the vow. And this is why prior to coming into the land, the Parshas speak about the land. They speak about the borders of the land. They speak about entering the land. We talk about vows to remind individuals that there are moments in life when we have to create certain barriers as a result of an understanding of ourselves. We know ourselves. Yes, this is the 613 commandments, but we know ourselves. We know our strengths. We know our weaknesses. An honest person knows oneself, and therefore Torah gives us the structure Torah suggests from time to time to create certain boundaries, to create certain barriers based upon the relative situation of my own life, my own strengths, my own weaknesses, and therefore I will create these type of boundaries. And this is something which is so important, and this is why it comes precisely at the time that the Jewish people are going to enter into the Promised Land. But what was the Battle of Midian about? Why does that story of the oaths and promises right after that, we talk about the Battle of Midian? And the answer, of course, is because Midian, the idol of Midian, was Balpaor. Now, what was Balpaor? Simple indulgence in hedonistic behavior. Pleasures of the flesh to the nth degree. Nothing else mattered. This is what the Jewish people, unfortunately, had to deal with when Midian opened their gates and doors, the story of Pinchas that we read last week, two weeks ago. Baal Peor was a type of idol that played to the weaknesses of every simple human being and encouraged negative, destructive, immoral behavior. And this is why the Midianite, unfortunately, this is something which stands in the way of coming into the promised land. Because if that type of behavior, if that type of lifestyle, if that type of idolatry 
is dominant and predominant, a person will never elevate themselves to the level that they have to in order to be one who reflects the image of God within the physical world. And therefore, Moshe is told that this is the great battle that the Jewish people have to do prior to entering into the land. And it's Moshe himself who's given this instruction, because Moshe is the one who understands each and every one as a leader. But more of that soon. This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipsker from Chabad of Hyde Park. We're talking about why it was necessary for Moshe to be the one Well, as his last mission in life, his last instruction from God to him, why he was the one who had to prepare the Jewish people for this great battle with Midian, etc., etc., why was it Moshe? And as explained before, because the battle with Midian was a battle to try and come to terms with strength and weaknesses, not only on a national level, on a collective basis, but as individuals as well. It was necessary for the Jewish people to look at themselves and to say, will Baal Peor, the idol of Midian, something which draws man down into a moral, unethical, hedonistic type of life, is that something that can take control of me? And it was necessary to encounter that. It was necessary to go into battle. And it was necessary to break that vision of what appeared to be, well, an authentic lifestyle on the part of some, and to say that basically it is something which is corrupt, vulgar, and violent. And as I said before, it wasn't only as a people that the Jewish people had to go into battle, but it was as individuals as well. And Moshe being, as I often speak about, the perfect leader, when he looked at his people, not only did he see a great multitude. Not only did he see a great people, he also saw a collection of many, many individuals. He had the capacity as the perfect leader, not only to, well, envisage the entire people as a nation, but to envisage the entire people as a huge collection of individuals, each with their own strength and each with their own weaknesses. And therefore, he was able to give guidance not only to the people as a whole, but he was able to give guidance to each and every single individual who has to do battle with the Midianite understanding of life and come to terms, terms of who and what he is. And this is what Moshe was all about. Moshe was leader in the perfect sense. Not only did he direct the nation, he directed the individuals within the nation as well. Because as mentioned before, the strengths and the weaknesses that we're talking about are highly, well, highly relative, relative to the individual. We're all different. Each and every one of us is a interesting but, well, unique balance of, well, positive and negative elements, each and every one of us. Yes, there are general categories that we fall into. Everybody falls into some general categories. But within those general categories, there are so many distinctions. There are so many differences, as many as there are people. Yes, each and every one of us has a particularly unique type of character definition, which is his and his alone, hers and hers alone. And therefore, you need some Somebody who has the spiritual capacity of leadership, as did Moshe, to look at the individual and say, this is where you have to 
work. This is where your boundaries have to be erected. This is where your structures have to be developed because based upon your own personal definition of self in terms of strength and weaknesses, this is precisely for you. And this is why Moshe is the one. And this is why, in fact, it's his great last mission. Because from here on in, every individual goes into the land and has to deal with the land in terms of their own personality strengths and weaknesses. And while, of course, they had the leadership of Joshua and each tribe had its own leader, and there were, well, groups within groups, but nonetheless, ultimately, it boils down to the individual, the individual who's going to behave at any given moment in time ethically or otherwise, morally or otherwise. This is what Moshe is instilling in the people prior to the great battle with Midian to make the right decisions in terms of their personal lives. Yes, collectively, we might be protected as a result of the fact that we are part of a nation, but at the same time, we have to see ourselves as the individuals that we are. We have to recognize our strengths and weaknesses and use them correctly with integrity and with honesty. And this is why when we talk about, well, going into the land, going into the land is precisely that. Going into the land is each and every single person has a portion in the land. But prior to that, we talk about the journeys, the second of the two parshas of this week. We talk about the journeys. And a journey is a very interesting sort of thing. You know, very often we tend to diminish the value of a journey. A journey basically, well, it's a time and distance between two spaces. I want to go from here to there. It's so far and uh, it will take me so much time. But we invest precisely that in every single journey, not only the destinations, but in every single journey of life we invest time and space. Yes, you can get into a car and drive along the highway for miles and miles, kilometers and kilometers, and never give it a second thought. But the fact is you are there, even for a split moment, even for a second, you are covering that distance. You know, even when you're flying through the air, going from one continent to the other, halfway around the world, you are giving of your time, and at the same time, you are crossing a particular area. Now, of course, it's near impossible to recognize what I have to do at every single, well, millimeter of my journey. But it's important to understand that it has a purpose. Whether I understand it or not, whether I know it or not, whether I recognize it or not, is something entirely different. But each and every single instance of time and space. And space also has its unique character, and time has unique character. And, well, here is the individual who is now connected with this particular space and this particular time. These are the great journeys. And, yes, we have destinations, 42 to be exact. And the Baal Shem Tov told us that each and every single person has 42 journeys in life. But the point is, those were the destinations, and in each destination, there was great purpose. And yes, in life as well, when we come to a destination, more than often we know what we should be doing there, at least in a general sense. But the journey itself is sometimes which becomes so unimportant, and yet it's part of life. It's not only the means by which I'm able to connect to particular places. It is also something that I traverse. It's something that I go through. It's something that I experience. I am investing my time and I am crossing this amount of land. 
And from time to time, we have to think about that as well. And these are the great parshas with which we end the book of Bamidbar. These are the great parshas by which we come to the conclusion of the story of the Jewish people while wandering, while walking in the wilderness. This is the story of the great preparation of coming into the promised land. And as I mentioned before, it's the Shabbos that we remember destruction. And when we have to remember destruction, we can be overwhelmed by the negativity and the grief And it should be there to a certain degree. There's no question about it. But at the same time, we also have to see beyond the grief. We have to see beyond the destruction. We have to see rebuilding. We have to see, well, reestablishing, refreshing, using those deep energies within ourselves. While we are in a state of grief, it's difficult sometimes for us to rise to that occasion, but that's precisely what is needed. Matas and Masai. Matas means strength and Masai means journey. Move forward with strength, with courage, with greatness, with pride. Move forward with a tremendous sense of doing the right thing. You are living in this world. You're contributing something to this world. You are taking your life, your strengths and your weaknesses and your time and you're giving it to this world. And this is what we ask for. We ask that we use it correctly. So have a great Shabbos. Be in shul tomorrow. Listen to the Parsha carefully, for it has a fascinating story to tell. And we end with Chazak, Chazak. Be strong, be strong.